0: All right, good morning, everyone. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Dustin. I'm one of the pastors here at Huntington Community Church, and I'm excited to get to worship with you all um, in the preaching of his word. And so where we're gonna land first is 1 Corinthians 12, so I'm gonna give you a head start. You can go ahead and get there. We've got a little bit of work to do before that, so as you're turning, that'll be on the screen behind us as well. The title of this sermon this morning is The Beautiful Bride of Jesus, the beautiful bride of Jesus, and as you know, we've been going through a series, um, starting out in the pastoral, really starting out in Acts, going into the pastoral epistles, all with the aim of us answering the question, "What does it mean to be a healthy church?" And so, admittedly, this is a step away from our work in First Timothy, but I'm hoping that you see it's congruent with the overall aim of that series. You see in The pastoral epistles and some of the one-off sermons we'll do in that, what we're trying to do is to ask ourselves that question. What does it mean to be healthy? Um, We need to see the logistics of leadership. We need to answer questions like what kind of men should we elect as our pastors? We need to be convinced that the scripture is true as we seek to confront false gospels that can easily take root in our hearts. We need to see and understand church discipline you're a member of this church, you have committed to loving accountability with each other as a family. And also, we need to see and understand our own structures, right? What does it look like for us to apply the pastoral epistles in our context to make sure that we safeguard the health of this church, not just for us now, but for generations from now when, you know, our spiritual great-great-great-great-grandkids are worshiping, um, probably not in this building, but hopefully with Huntington Community Church. And not only that, these logistics are not just so we can run a program, it's actually to set us free as the church to be focused on what is really ministry, loving and serving people. It's helpful for us to know what we are building as a church. Family meetings are crucial, how we operate with our ministry documents, and yes, even that pesky constitution that we have amended over and over again, all of these things are important for us to bring glory to God in our faithfulness, trusting that as we do that, he will bear fruit in our lives and in our city. But that's not my aim this morning. I'm going to let Adam take care of a lot of that in the pastoral epistles. My aim this morning is for all of us to leave here overwhelmed with the beauty of Jesus' bride, the church. But as we do that, I'm hoping that as we see the beauty of who Jesus' bride is, that ultimately we leave here enamored with Christ himself. And so my job here this morning is to hide behind the word. I want to give you a series of miniature expositions of some working metaphors of what the writers of the New Testament show us what the church is and what the church is like, Now, it's not all of them, but it is some of the most prominent. And as we do that, I'm hoping that we leave here praising Jesus, that we are inspired deeply to live out our lives as the church, that we might repent of the ways. As we see the beauty of these things, we would repent of the ways that our lives, not only individually, but as a body, are falling short of this in an effort to display his glory in front of a watching world. So I want us to love Jesus and love his bride. We have to establish in the beginning, though, that loving Jesus is loving his people. We can't disconnect them, though they are two distinct commands. This should go without saying, but sometimes I think it does go without saying to our detriment. It doesn't make any sense at all to say that you love Jesus if you don't love his church. And not just in word only, but does your life look like a life marked by sacrificing your own time and energy, dying to yourself so the people of God may live and be blessed. It's not okay to say you love Jesus and see his church as just a place that you come to be served by others rather than seeing it as a people that you get to love. The church is the family of God. Um, Mel, you want to go ahead and put Luke 8 up there, you guys don't have to turn there, you can see it on the screen. What we see over and over again as a baseline metaphor for what the church is, is the family of God. We see it in the New Testament, the letters, people called brother, people called sister, all of us under our heavenly father, Jesus as our elder brother. We're the family of God. It is inherent in who we are. We are family, not just like family. I love the idea that Jesus's blood is thicker than blood. Do you realize this? This is what we committed to. When you were saved by Christ, he didn't save you just individually. You were saved to a people. Look at Luke 8. This is the way Jesus says it. Then his mother, key, look, his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, this key, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. This has crazy implications for us, but what I want you to see at the forefront is that this is the foundation of the other word pictures that we'll examine this morning. You have family. This is what we get to be a part of. And for those of you who are lonely and maybe your need for community is prominent right now, you're like, no one really knows me. I don't know anybody. I feel alone and you are in Christ. Hopefully this is anchoring for you. You have family. Not a cliche. Yeah, we're all just you know singing Kumbaya all once a week on a Sunday morning, but family. But for those of you, this is maybe the scariest. You don't really feel like you need friends. You found community in other places. Maybe you just think you know church is an add-on to your already robust social life. You need to understand this is part of what you signed up for whenever you decided to follow Christ to love and know His church. You have family that that you didn't choose. God chose them for you in Christ. And already, hopefully just this alone helps us see this should change the way that we look at each other and the way we live with each other. But I want to take a moment to address those of you who maybe have been hurt by the church. Um, I want to invite you all over again to gaze at the beauty of who she is. Um, It's easy to let experiences with people who go to a church cloud our vision of what God calls the church to be. Christ has not let us down, and the way in his good wisdom that he wants us to experience the fullness of what it means to follow him is in and through his church. And also, for those of you that have been coming here a while and have not made a commitment to join our church, I want you to see these realities this morning as an invitation to go all in, if you know and follow Jesus and consider this your church, your next step is to commit to this family and membership. It's not good to keep coming, standing so close to being on the inside, but keeping your distance so that you're not known. It's not good to do that in a prolonged way. And so this is not a guilt trip. I'm hoping that this is actually a grace trip. Sorry, I know that's terrible. But I really don't want you to leave here crushed by the expectations here, but to see this as an invitation into what Christ has purchased for you. So if you're someone in that camp, you're going to feel slightly outside of this sermon. That's intentional. Once again, not to make you feel that, although in some ways that might be good, but I want you to see that the commitment under loving biblical leadership, committed to church discipline and accountability together, committed to a family, is the thrust of the New Testament. For those of us who know Christ and are in the universal church, we are called implicitly through all of these commands to join up with a local church under biblical leadership committed as a family. And it's not just to build that up so you wear a Huntington Community Church t-shirt, The point is that you are actually bringing the most glory to our Father, and you, as a follower of Christ, will thrive being known in that way. So, part three of the introduction. Sorry about that, but I want to make sure we're all on the same page. God has always had a people in biblical history. Throughout the Old Testament, God had his people Israel. This old covenant people was given the promise of the new covenant that would create a new people in Christ. And it's in that longing and expectation that Jesus burst onto human history, fulfilling and being in himself the ultimate people or person of God. Especially in Matthew's gospel, we see him really going through efforts to paint Jesus as the fulfillment of the old covenant people of God. Think about it. He gets baptized into a river, immediately goes into 40 days of temptation, picks 12 disciples. All of this meant to show the true and better thing is here. What Jesus is making is the fulfillment of God's people. And then we see it in his um, discourse with people. We see him reference the church a few times in relation to the disciples' authority, and we see him make promises that the church cannot be stopped. And then he dies for our sins, rises again, and before he did that, he promises to send a helper, the Holy Spirit, to baptize the people longing and following Jesus so that they might be empowered as witnesses across the globe. And as we watch the word spread through these Spirit-empowered disciples, as we've seen in Acts, what we are watching is Jesus build his church. Spirit-empowered people proclaiming the word, God saves, and those people gather. And that's what we see. And along the way, the story of Acts, we see New Testament letters written that shape the life of the people of God in light of the death and resurrection of Christ. Or, to put it another way, shows us what it means to live a life as the church. And so one of those letters is the book of Ephesians. In chapter 3, verse 8 through 10, we read this. This is Paul writing, To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things. Here's the key, verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So somehow, even in the supernatural realm, what we do as the body of Christ, as the bride of Christ, is showing off the manifold wisdom of God in the heavenly places, One of my favorite quotes about the nature of the church, I think it comes from an author in the Nine Marks organization, but he says that churches are time machines from the future showing us what heaven is like. Man, I love that. That what we're doing, we are showing people about the world to come. How we love each other, how we worship Jesus, how we live distinct from the rest of the world. We are time machines from the future showing the world what heaven is like. We're showing off his wisdom in the way that we obey His commands as a family, on mission, for the glory of God, in front of and in a watching world, and somehow supernaturally, even in the heavenly places. I love in First Peter chapter one, Peter writes that watching the story of salvation, it's writing about things that even the angels long to see. The angels in the heavens watching. what is Jesus doing through his church? This isn't about just putting ministry programs together. This is showing off the glory of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Man, can you see the weight of this? Literally, just as we operate, as the people of God, both corporately on our weekend gatherings, formally in our ministries and in our workplaces as we scatter in the community, what we are doing is proclaiming that our God is wise. So in the ways that God instructed us to think and act as the church, what are those ways that we need to display the manifold wisdom of God? That's my aim this morning, that we would see these realities, we would consider them, and that we might leave here living them out together. Now be honest, it's going to give us a lot to think about, but all I'm hoping is that we would hear the word this morning, we would leave here committed to doing the Word in the way that we relate to one another as the people of God. And we need to see these realities as things that Jesus died and rose again to purchase in us. He purchased our obedience. He purchased forgiveness from where we fall. And he purchased help from the spirit to live out who we are as the church. And as we do that, it's my hope, and I'm praying all week for this, the world would see our lives and give glory to God as they repent and believe of the gospel that we are proclaiming. And somehow, in an Ephesians 3 kind of way, we'll show off his wisdom even to the angels. So our first metaphor, 1 Corinthians 12. You should already be there. It will be up on our screen. We'll get a drink really quick as you're turning. So this first one, we're gonna look at the idea of the church being Jesus's body. Um, Kind of the rhythm of these metaphors, you can think how we look in, one of them is going to be looking up and the other one is going to be looking out. But for now, let's consider what does it mean that the church is Jesus' body in regards to our posture of love toward each other? So I'm going to read a little bit, pause, and give you the implications as we make our through our way through verses 12 through 27. So this chapter, just so you know, whenever we're doing kind of more topically based, although I don't like that word, I would say this is topical exposition. Um, but we are going to be giving some context to this so you don't just think we're kind of parachuting in and making it say whatever I want, okay? So this chapter, um, what's happening in the context of 1 Corinthians is they're dividing over the ways that the members of the church use their Gifts. How God, how the Holy Spirit has gifted His people to serve each other and witness to the world. Okay, so that's the context. Look at verse 12 with me. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So one thing that we absolutely must understand if we're going to show off the glory and wisdom of God as a church is to understand that a human body is one body made up of many different parts. We probably all walked in here knowing that, right? You came in here as one body, right? With many different body parts. But what part of that is to show us how the church or the body of Christ works, One key detail that I love, found right in verse 13, is that Paul reminds them and us that the one body that we are includes both Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, all meant to drink from the same spirit. What is clear here, that as the body of Christ, we will have beauty in our unified diversity unified in gospel doctrine and mission and diverse in our backgrounds, in our skin colors, in our perspectives, experiences, strengths, weaknesses, financial situations, all of these part of one body. And listen, we are free to pursue this. This is a beautiful thing to work for, and it takes work. Our church's mission is not to just get a bunch of people who already look like us and think like us and gather us together under the name of Huntington Community Church, We're trying to live out what it means to be the body of Christ. And I'll challenge you. I think one way to live out the implications of just the realities in verses 12 and 13, see if you're bold enough to do this this morning, would be to go up to the one person in our church family or in this gathering that you think you are probably the most different from, and I want you to walk up to that person and say, hi, isn't it glorious that we are nothing alike, but Jesus is alive? Try it. Not right now. Think about it. Find that person that you're like, I know we're on the same church family, but wow, we have nothing in common other than Christ. Go up there and tell them about it. That'd be beautiful. Um, I think, even if you don't want to do that, I understand some of you are already nervous, thinking like, is that what we have to go do this morning? Even if you don't want to do that, can we commit as a church family to letting this reality shape the way that we view family, that we would press into these conversations, and when we see our differences, we see that as part of the manifold wisdom of God. Think about it. He could have just saved and put in this church a bunch of people who look exactly like me. That would have been weird. Not sure why that giggle came out, but that's okay. Why would that be bad, other than all the reasons you're already thinking It would be bad because it would not show the manifold wisdom of God in showing off our unified diversity. It's part of what it means to be the body of Christ. Verse 14, he continues this argument, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. This is a great thing to be true, not just on a local church level for us in this room, but also in our city. This reality has universal church implications. Think about it. We couldn't reach everyone without the good work of other gospel-preaching churches in this city. should pray for them. Man, we can't even fit everybody in our parking lot, let alone minister and disciple to the needs of all the people that I believe God wants to save in Huntington. So it's not just looking around and realizing, well, we are one with many. Also, on a universal church level, we are one but many. Verse 15, If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. So what's the realities here? Our differences in gift and function do not make us any less part of the body. And I think a church family can slip into this when we implicitly or maybe explicitly highlight the, the gifts that put people on stage. It's easy to do that, right? If you're not up here on a platform, that means you're not doing real ministry. In fact, you're just the audience coming to watch the stage people do ministry. That is unbiblical and detrimental to our witness as a church. But for all of us in here, we need to understand that this truth could actually change the way that we think. We should see the differing gifts among us and celebrate them and praise the Lord for the way he has equipped this body and placed us all in the right places. And so there's some of you maybe that are aware of your gifts already trying to dream about what it's going to look like to serve this body in this city as a member of this church. But I think there's some of you maybe that are thinking, none of my gifts matter. In fact, I'm not even sure what I'm really gifted in. I want you to hear me. Based on the realities found in verses 15 and 16, you need to understand that we need you. There's some of you that have let comparison stop you from going all in in this church body. We need your actively present presence, not only in these gatherings, but in our community groups, in our ministries, and your personal ministries. We need you. Your community groups need you to show up. We need you to be here on these gatherings. It's not about consuming ministry content, it's about being part of the body when we gather on mission. To assume that you're not needed at these things is as crazy as planning to go on vacation without bringing your right hand, either ear or your left foot. Not only is it impossible, you just wouldn't do it. It was an option for you. The body goes together. We need to gather and to be together. You are needed here. Obviously, God doesn't need any of us. I understand that. But we need each other to be the body that God has called us to be. If you are an ear and you don't come, you're not a part of this, then we can't hear. Think about this. Don't let yourself think, "Oh, because I'm not this or I'm not up front or I'm not gifted in this way, there must not be a place for me." Based on the biblical reality, you have a place. Verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? So not only does everybody have a place, our differences in function and gift actually make us a more effective body. Now the the word picture in verse 17 is honestly kind of scary to me, thinking about a body just made up of eyeballs. But his point is clear. We have to be a church that recognizes and celebrates and helps all of us use all of our gifts to serve all of us and our World, we must guard against having a ministry type. We are only used if you fit a certain mold or personality. God made and remade all of us in Christ to be used in the way that He wants us to be used in this body. Verse twenty, He continues His argument. As it is, there are many parts yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, "Ski, I have no need of you." Nor again the head to the foot, "I have no." Need of you, so it's biblical. You can't say that, which means it's biblical to say we need each other. We need each other to show off the manifold wisdom of God. I love thinking about this church and our gatherings, um, and not just not just here, but also in our communities and our around our tables at our houses. And as I'm thinking about that and studying, there's a ministry idea or paradigm, if you will, that I've kind of become obsessed with lately. And it's the thought of the church being a ministry arena to think. This is the arena that we get to glorify God and do ministry in. So I want to show you, kind of keep that in mind, thinking it's not just a place we go to consume, but as the people of God, we are an arena to show off the manifold wisdom of God as we serve people. So let me show you the way that Paul hits on this idea, kind of showing us how we can all work together in Romans. And then I want to take a moment to imagine what this could look like if we left here believing that. So Romans 12, four through eight should be on the screen. You don't have to turn there. We're gonna be back um, in 1 Corinthians 12. This is one of the gifts of the New Testament um, or the New Testament lists of gifts that we see, but I love this. For as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Here's the list. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us Let us use them. So we can just stop there. Let's use them, right? But look at the different ways this can look. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So please understand, God has given us gifts. So what would it look like? This is a little illustration I did in my mind this week, thinking about how cool it would be to see all of us operate as the arena of personal ministry for God's glory on mission. So let's just imagine that someone gifted in inviting people into their lives has someone over to another person's house who's gifted at generous hospitality. And then they talk all night and eventually bring them to our church gathering the next morning. The new person comes in and is greeted by three different people and probably Beth Smith who then make sure they are loved and cared for. The band leads us well, the pastor brings the word, as you will. Four others that have gifts for recognizing new people and make sure to invite them out to lunch afterward where they learn that this person has a family crisis. They pray for that person then text others in the church family to pray too. And that group text rallies to help this person in the crisis. All the while we're all serving with joy and zeal for the glory of God. That's the body in action. That's an eyeball and an ear and a thumb and a hand and an elbow, all working toward the same goal, but using their different gifts in the different places and relationships that God places us. Our church can be an arena for that. It's not up to you to do all the functions of one body part, it is up to you to be faithful in the body that you have been placed in. Verse 22 On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greatest honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. How do we live this out? We honor all, but especially the ones who are most overlooked. We work hard to make sure there are no invisible family members in this body and no invisible people in our lives. We meet the dishonor of the world with the honor found in the word of God. And I think this is a great time to just highlight and encourage uh, the group behind our woven ministry. In a world that overlooks and dishonors people with disabilities and special needs, we have the great honor of making sure that their gifts are known and appreciated. And it goes beyond just obviously special needs It goes for any of us who might find ourselves feeling weak or inadequate or overlooked. Part of what it means to be the body of Christ is we find those people and make sure they are honored. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in this body, in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. All of this designed for us to care for each other in a way that fosters unity and no division. I love Romans 12.10. It's one of my favorite verses. It ends with Paul um, exhorting the church in Rome to outdo one another in showing honor. I'm naturally a very competitive person, so this is very fun for me. Thinking, okay, I'm coming in Sunday morning. I'm going to out-honor every single one of you. I'm just going to do it. not going to lose in this one. But you can see how beautiful that is if all of us think we're coming in here, not who's going to honor me, but instead not going to let Dustin out honor me today. Good luck. But I want you to have that spirit-empowered zeal to think part of our role as the body of Christ is to honor each other, especially the ones who experience the most dishonor from the world and are the most overlooked. That's how we care for each other and foster unity. We can't let the strong, gifted, more visible people form up top while people who haven't found their place yet feel pushed out. We have the same care for each other. Romans, I don't have this, this is a different note, Melch, but Romans 15 says that those who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And he connects that directly to our Savior who bore with our failings in his death and resurrection. We honor one another as the body. 26, finish up this section. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. To live this out, we're gonna have to commit to knowing each other's struggles and victories. We should long for hearts like this that if one of us suffers, we all suffer. But if one is honored, we all rejoice together. And as we live this out, what it does is the gospel bulldozes our pride. Because what matters is that the body glorifies God, not that the thumb gets all the credit. And we get to go live that out in front of a watching world. Think about it. For the people who have been disenfranchised by church, it's probably because it revolved around one person with a lot of gifts that crushed anybody in his way to make sure he got the honor. Because of the gospel, we are free to flip that upside down. We work to honor all. This is already amazing. Hopefully, this picture should inspire you, convict you, empower you to live this out. But there's other pictures that can help us see more of the beauty of the church. So the church is the people of God. We are a family and we function like a body. So that's in, looking at each other, in. Now we're going to look up. The church is not only family and body. The church is Jesus' temple and the priesthood. So our worship to God. We're going to find this in 1 Peter 2, verse 4 and 5. Context here, this is written to suffering Christians, written to the church, reminding them and us who we are and what we do, no matter the opposition. Verse four, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves to the church, live, like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So church, notice who we are. We are living stones being built into a spiritual house. We are not in a church right now. The church is in this building. We are a spiritual house. The Old Testament temple was a place of worship and sacrifice, was the pinnacle of God's presence, and the point as the Old Testament people of God, they worshiped at the temple, it was to display the glory of their God. And now the Bible, New Testament is clear that we are the temple your individual body, but also us collectively, the church is the temple of God. And so we sing and we pray and we direct our hearts toward him as the church. I'm begging you, just in the grandeur of thinking, somehow God has made us the temple of God. We should not overlook what is going on when we gather as the body and family of Christ. We don't come to church to get something out of the service. That's not the point. We come to bring worship to God. It's not about us. When you find in your flesh you slipping into thinking, should I even come today? I should probably come, I just need something. That is the opposite of what you've been set free to do. And of course, you're gonna get the word and hear the gospel and receive the benefits of being around the people of God. But your job as a temple of God, coming with the temple of God, is to bring glory to the God of the temple. This is what we do. We gather as his people and we worship as his people. We don't just sing songs as a prelude to the sermon. And we don't just pray for the nations because that's just something we feel like we should do because change the world is in our mission statement. This is us bringing worship to God. The Old Testament temple was never about how beautiful it was. Its beauty pointed to the beauty of the one who was and is present in it. Our worship, not only looking in, we function as a body, but why are we here to bring glory to God? Another reality found in that temple metaphor that Peter makes clear is that as living stones, we will be rejected by the world, but chosen and precious by God, just like Jesus This is something for you to remember in light of our calling to be the temple of God. Do you remember what happened to the temple in Old Old Testament history? Destroyed. But do you remember what happened when Jesus connected his life and death to the temple? Destroyed, yes, but rebuilt on the third day. It was actually talking about his body. And so you need to understand Gathering and saying our lives as a church are only about the glory of God means it is going to put us in opposition of a world that we love, but a world that will hate our worship. The temple made it clear there is one God over heaven and earth. All of these other temples are not just a different religious path. They are demonic. And so when we come and say we worship the one true God in Christ, We are proclaiming something that puts us at odds with all of the other worshiping worshiping that goes on in our world. Good news is, because we're already in him, they can destroy our temple, our bodies, or they could kill us all. And we will still be found praising God. So not only that, it's not just the Old Testament temple that points us to the reality of the church. It's also what happened in the temple in the tabernacle that points us to this. And it's that the church, us, the body and family of God are the priesthood of God to offer sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. Now, I wanna show you two other references from Romans to round out this idea biblically. One of these um, you've probably heard before if you're familiar with your Bible. Romans 12, one and two. Notice the language here. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now man, we could do a whole sermon series on Romans 12,1 and 2. There's a lot here, but I want the key thing for you to take away from this passage, as we're considering temple and priesthood, is for you to see that our worship is to present our bodies as spiritual worship to God. Our time, our talent, our treasure, all of our being, thinking. It's not, if I get time, I'll put part of it to God. It is the center of our being. If you're a follower of Christ, you are a temple of God. And he dwells in the temple, in our inner man and in our bodies. We worship God, which means when you're doing your devotional time or your quiet time or any religious activity that you may commit yourself to, you are worshiping God you are not fulfilling a religious checklist. It's aware and before the presence of the almighty God. But it's not just that, this inner worship that Paul connects this idea of sacrifice and priesthood to. In Romans fifteen sixteen. it's one of my favorite verses, helping me understand the point of ministry. It, Paul's describing himself and says, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, look at this, in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So notice what is happening in this verse and our understanding of worship as the temple and as the priesthood of God. Our ministry to others, good deeds to do, but more importantly and most prominently, good news to proclaim is an offering to God. This is incredible. All of our life is worship we as the temple offer ourselves and others' faith as part of our priestly work on this planet. One more passage to help us see this fully. Ephesians 2, 17 through 22. This is beautiful. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God that family language, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, the word, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, the word made flesh, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Man, I'm afraid we let these things we've heard our whole lives just go right past us. You read 22, In him, church, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Because of Jesus, we have access to God and peace with him, and we become a place where God dwells. Do you stop to consider this? God is here. This isn't just a weekend hobby for us. He's in you by the Spirit, And the church, when we gather, is a beautiful dwelling place for God. He's not in this room whenever we're not here, other than he's omnipresent, I understand that. But he's present in a sense of dwelling his people. To be the church is to worship this God who is in us and among us. And so we are living stones who use our bodies to worship God. We give of ourselves as the church and this runs against the consumerism that we can sneak into as a body. We are here to praise God for the sacrifice that he has made for us in Christ to purchase our salvation and bring us to him. And then we continue to offer our sacrifices as we minister to others in gospel service and gospel proclamation. So let's review before we get to our next one. People of God, God always has his people. Foundational metaphor is that we're a family. Jesus is our older brother, God our father. We function, looking in, like a body. The head being Christ, his body destroyed for us but resurrected to create a body on earth. We are the the temple and the priesthood, bringing our worship, looking up. Jesus as the true and better temple and high priest that we emulate and worship. So we look at each other in, we're looking up, Worship. So the question next is, what are we going to do? So, in, up, and now, out. The church is Jesus's holy nation. It's not just family, not just body, not just temple and priesthood. Holy nation. We're going to stay in First Peter two for you to see this. Our mission in the world, verse nine. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So how do we live this out? Glorious realities, obviously, but a lot of these, as you've probably picked up, are overlapping, so I'm gonna focus on a few here. One is to see that we are owned by God. This is why we have to do church the way he wants us to. We don't just get to decide to do it however we want. We're owned. We are owned people. God gave us his word as his authority. We are his nation made up of many nations. But the big thing I want you to see here is why are we that? Why are we a chosen race? Why are we a royal priesthood? Why are we a holy nation, a people for his own possession? Look at um, after the comma in verse nine, that you may proclaim We were saved to be gathered so that we would be a proclaiming people. We get to proclaim the gospel as the holy nation of God in our nation, starting in our city and going to the nations. We don't just have good works to do. We have news to proclaim. We are not just doing good. We are saying the best news, part of what we are. We, as the people of God, open our mouths to tell the world that God is good, he is here, and what he has done for us in Christ. We must start to see this as what we were made to do. Just as we should look and honor all of us, part of what the church was made to do is to be proclaimers. I think it's fair when you stop and pause and let ourselves sit in the conviction of owning up to our lack of evangelism. It's not just us deciding to not open our mouths. It is us not being what we were made to do. Not just to bring people here to let the preacher proclaim the gospel. We do this as the church proclaiming the gospel. And he rounds in the gospel, making it clear that at one time, you were not God's people, but because of Christ, by faith through grace, by grace through faith, all my uh, reformed people were like, wait a second, that's the wrong order. All right. You are saved and brought near to be gathered, to be sent, to proclaim. You weren't a people, now you are. You didn't have mercy, now you do, by his spirit. And that's what we get to go tell others about. So let me remind you, church, that's our mission. Before Jesus left, he gave us, go and make disciples of all nations. That implies that we open our mouths as the family, body, temple, priesthood, holy nation, of God. We bring glory to God by doing this. And as the church, we go, as we're proclaiming, we live out these gospel-given identities that we have. As the body, we stay unified and honor each other and suffer with each other. As the temple priesthood, we bring our worship to God alone. As the nation, we proclaim the mercy that we have found in Christ. And as we do this, we show off the manifold wisdom of God, not just to the heavenly realm, but to a watching world around us. Jesus says they will know that he was sent by the way that we love one another. So the way we treat each other is part of our witness to the world. He calls us lights to the world that as we do good, the Gentiles might see us, our good works, and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. And as we do this, the Lord will add to our number just as we are the church. Did you catch that in Acts 2 when it's talking about them being devoted to the apostles' teaching and the breaking of bread? As they're doing these normal church identities, it says the Lord added to their number. We just go be who we are and who we've been made to be in Christ. And by the way, we're not just given a mission, we're given promises. Do you understand that we cannot be stopped? One of the references that Jesus gives to the church in his discourses in the Gospels is he says that he's gonna build his church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against us. Now you think about it. The gates of hell are a defensive weapon, right? Usually if you're gonna fight somebody, you don't bring a gate. You build a gate to keep people out. So it's not a promise to empower us as the church to stay in our little bubbles and be the church knowing that hell can't get in. It is a call to bust out of this place into our workplaces, into our neighborhoods, storming our city in love, being what we are called to be, knowing that hell cannot stop it. And you should join us. Either for the first time in a room this size, I'm sure there's people here that are on the outside. You're in that category of not knowing the mercy of God or not being a people of God. You need to understand that because of what Christ has done, By his grace, you'll respond in repentance and faith, believing what he has done for you on the cross and resurrection. You too can be a part of the people of God. Or if you already know Jesus, what are you waiting on? It makes no sense to claim to be a Christian and let church be an optional add-on hobby that you just kind of say that you go to. Not only does that make sense, it's disobedient. It's not good for your joy. And doesn't bring God the most glory. So we've looked in, we've looked up, we've looked out, and now I want us to look on forever. The last metaphor this morning the church is our, it's the family of God, it's the body of Christ, it's the temple and priesthood of God, it is the holy nation of God, and the church is Jesus's bride. 2 Corinthians 11 1 through 3 says, Paul's writing to the same church in Corinth to um, rebuke them on some stuff, but there's an idea here that opens this up for us. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So right there, that's our goal as the bride of Christ. We want sincere and pure devotion to our husband. There will be pain. There will be opposition, our own sin, our own disunity, all of these works and tricks of the enemy to get us away from a sincere and pure devotion in Christ, which is our goal. But as the church, we can lock arms and keep going together because the metaphor of the bride of Christ not only convicts us where we're not fully faithful in pure and sincere devotion, it is also our hope. The bride of Christ should show you our hope. Look at Revelation 19. Revelation 19, verse six. Then I heard, it's the end of history. Uh, God is giving John a vision of what is to come. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. Here's the key. For the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And then two chapters over, looking at our ultimate and final home as the church. Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And then I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down. It's connecting that temple and priesthood um, imagery all throughout the whole Bible. It's where it finds its culmination is here. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. No more time machine. The future will be there, and there will be no sin. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, no more suffering to suffer together with, and death shall be no more, no more church funerals. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The Bride of Christ metaphor not only shows us where we need to be devoted to our husband, it gives us our hope that the church cannot lose. Marriage has always been a picture from the beginning of Genesis to Revelation to show us the reality of Christ and his church. And just as Adam was put to sleep, his body broken, his pierced side to create his bride, our new and better Adam, our groom, was put to death his body broken, his side pierced to create and redeem his bride. That you catch what color the bride will be wearing? White. That should remind us all of our sin, all of the way that we've failed in all of these different ways, up to that point, because of what Christ has done. us as the bride of Christ will be wearing white. now. We get to do something really special this morning. I love how this worked out. Jesus gave the church two ordinances, um, baptism to celebrate new life in Christ, and he gave us communion or the Lord's Supper to feast upon what Christ has done for us in the gospel. And so um, deacons and the team, whoever's doing that, if you can make your way on up, I want to explain what we're doing. If you're new to church or maybe just new to our church, this is a Lord's Supper. Um, there's going to be Um, A little cup up here in the stations. Um, You can take one of those. There's a bread cup, and then there's a juice cup. And those are given to us as a picture of the glory of Christ in the gospel. His body broken for us, his blood shed. So a few things, though, before you come and take of this. One thing that is made clear in the New Testament is that before we do this, we must take it in a worthy manner. And so if you have disunity in this body, you need to go take care of that before you would come up here and take and especially if you're somebody who is outside of the body of Christ, you're not a Christian, we would ask you to not come up and take this. This is for the church. Um, Also here at HCC, if you're not a member of this church, we do invite you to come and take with us and celebrate. But I'm praying, if you've been here for a while, God is stirring in you. You're not committed here. So make things right, repent and resolve, and then come feast as the people of God, that are a family and body unity as temple in our worship, proclaiming the gospel in our communion and loving our husband with pure and sincere devotion.